welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Brothers and sisters, consider what you were when God called you to be Christians. Not many of you were wise from a human point of view. You were not in powerful positions or in the upper social classes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, God's Word Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're glad to be with you today as we continue with our series on Anchored by Truth that we are calling Paul's Places. By Paul, of course, we're referring to the Apostle Paul, who wrote at least 13 of the books out of the 27 that comprise the New Testament. The Apostle Paul started out life named Saul, but his encounter on the road to Damascus with the risen Christ changed Saul forever. So later, Saul began to go by the name Paul, and as Paul, he became the foremost apostle to the Gentiles. God used Paul to write almost half of the New Testament, including 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the books we're focusing on today. To help us continue this study about Paul's places, we have R.D. Fierro back in the studio. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., in our last couple of episodes, we focused on the book of Romans. So today you want to move to the next couple of books as they are arranged in the order of the New Testament, which are the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. What are we going to see in these books? Well, before I get into that, I would like to start by thanking our listeners for joining us here today. We have a singular focus on Anchored by Truth, And that focus is to help people develop a solid understanding of why they may be confident that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I tend to think that 15 or 20 years ago, a radio program, a podcast, with this kind of a focus probably was far less necessary than it is today. Because in those days, when you told people that you believed in the Bible, most people didn't think much about it. Even people who did not personally believe in the Bible largely accepted the fact that the Bible was widely thought of as being the Word of God. But that's not true today. We have now experienced an unrelenting attack on the reliability of Scripture for two decades or maybe more. There have been countless TV shows, movies, books, not to mention various internet presentations, and all of them have a title something like they were going to reveal the, quote, real Jesus, or they're going to reveal, quote, the real story behind this Bible myth or that, quote, Bible story. Today, if you just proclaim that you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, you are more likely to encounter open disbelief than you are acceptance. And sometimes you're going to encounter outright hostility. And so that's why it's important for us to look at the books of the Bible, to look and see what their historical and cultural setting is, because when you do so, you find out that those books are actually very consistent with what we know about the history, the culture, the geography of the places to which those letters, those epistles were written. And often this hostility is quite blatant. 
In 2001, PBS aired a seven-episode series entitled Evolution. Around the same time, the magazine Scientific America published an article entitled 15 Answers to Creationist Nonsense. The subtitle of that article was Opponents of Evolution Want to Make a Place for Creationism by Tearing Down Real Science, But Their Arguments Don't Make Sense. And these are just two examples of the many that could be cited where the Bible is now openly attacked by seemingly informed sources. Right. And these attacks on the reliability and the inspiration of Scripture, they don't just come from outside the church. There have been and there are prominent teachers within the church who have abandoned the idea that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Well, the good news is that these attacks on the Bible and its reliability and its inspiration can be refuted. But the bad news is that it takes time, energy, and effort to do so. The Bible has truth, facts, and reason as its bedrock, and that can be demonstrated. But in order for us to demonstrate that, it does take some effort sometimes on our parts. So what we try to do is give listeners a head start in knowing how to build their own confidence in the Bible as the inspired Word of God. But in order to do so, we have to ask our listeners not just to read the Bible, but they also have to come to know something about ancient history, including the places and cultures that existed thousands of years ago. And that's the big reason we wanted to undertake this study series on Paul's Places. Paul's Places is about the epistles, or letters, that the Apostle Paul wrote to various churches. And in our Bibles, the titles assigned to those epistles, which we also call books, are geographic names like Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, etc. Yes, and since we've raised the subject, for anyone who wants to get the detailed rebuttal to the PBS series and the Scientific American article, I highly recommend that they get a copy of Dr. Jonathan Sarfati's book, Refuting Evolution 2, because in that book, Dr. Sarfati absolutely takes apart the arguments that were presented by PBS in their television series, and he takes apart the so-called facts that were presented in that magazine piece by Scientific American. And Dr. Sarfati does so by using the application of real science and real logic to the questions that were raised. Or listeners can go to our website, crystalseabooks.com, and click on the Anchored by Truth icon and then go to 2020. In 2020, we did a 10-episode series entitled The Truth in Genesis, featuring Dr. Sarfati, where we did a good introduction on the science that demonstrates that the book of Genesis is literal history. So, where do you want to start today? Well, as we have just mentioned, the Bible has truth, facts, and reason as its bedrock. And this is not just true for books like Genesis, but for all of the books of the Bible, including the books of the New Testament. So, one way to see that the Bible is solidly grounded on facts, truth, and reason is to do what we are doing in this series. We are taking a look at the epistles, the letters, that were written by the Apostle Paul, and we are investigating the reason that a particular letter was written to a particular church. And when we do so, we find out that the unique geographical and historical circumstances of the church and the city in which that church was located are very helpful to us understanding why that particular epistle, that particular letter, contained the material that it did. And so today we want to look at the historical and cultural setting for the city of Corinth and see how that relates to the contents of the two letters that were written to that church. So the first thing we need to clarify 
is that Corinth still exists as a city today in the nation of Greece. You can find it on a map with a simple internet search. Corinth is about 50 miles west of Athens, and today we would say it is located in southern Greece. The northern part of Greece in Paul's time was called Macedonia. The cities of Philippi and Thessalonica, which also received letters from Paul, were located in Macedonia. Yes. So if you take a look at a map to see where Corinth is located even today, one fact clearly leaps out at you. Corinth is located on a very narrow strip of land called an isthmus, and that isthmus connects the northern part of Greece with the southern part of Greece. Now at its narrowest, this isthmus is only about six miles wide, and on the eastern side of the isthmus is the Saronic Gulf, which connects to the Aegean Sea, On the western side of the Isthmus is the Gulf of Corinth, which connects to the Ionian Sea. Now, this obviously means that Corinth sits in an ideal place to be a commercial and a trading center. Corinth is very near the middle of the Isthmus, and as you said, the narrowest part was about six miles wide, although it was somewhat wider where Corinth stood. Therefore, it was a natural place to transfer goods and passengers, whether they were heading east from Italy and Europe or west from Asia. The Greeks and Romans both tried to connect the two seas by cutting across the isthmus, and traces still remain of their attempts. They also tried to figure out ways to move ships across the isthmus, but none of these attempts succeeded. So, Corinth just relied on its two ports to receive and dispatch ships. Because of its unique location, Corinth was literally where, for the Mediterranean world and the Roman Empire, the east met the west. Exactly. So, just as an example of the importance of Corinth in the Roman world, Corinth was almost exactly due west of the city of Ephesus, which is on the western tip of Turkey, near the modern-day city of Izmir, Turkey. And Ephesus was the major commercial center for the Roman province of Asia. So, by boat, Corinth would be about 250 miles from Turkey, whereas if someone had used a land route to go from Ephesus to get to Corinth, that would have been closer to 900 miles. So in ancient Rome, it would have been the difference in travel between a few days with favorable winds and several weeks of a hard overland travel. Now, coming from Rome, in other words, coming from the west and heading east in the opposite direction of heading from Ephesus, the same thing would have been true. The city of Syracuse, which is on the southern tip of Italy, would have only been a few days away from Corinth by boat, but it would have been weeks away from it by land. So this tells us that Corinth was a city that was used to a lot of travelers coming and going, and it was a place where a lot of goods and monies changed hands. In other words, it was a vibrant city commercially during Paul's time. And therefore, anyone who lived in Corinth would have had the opportunity to meet and speak with travelers from all over the Roman world, right? Right. Uh, Sort of. Uh, Why sort of? Well, this is where we need to start thinking about the kind of traffic that would have been taking place in Paul's day. There would have been a lot of travelers going to Corinth, a lot of merchants, and there also would have been a lot of sailors and ship crew members. So just as in many modern-day port cities, there were a lot of people coming to Corinth who were away from their homes, and many of those had been spending long days on ships. Corinth was a very important commercial and trading center but it was also a city that, frankly, catered to desire and pleasure. Corinth had a long history, even prior to the first century AD. At one time, it even had its own navy, 
According to Greek historians, the first ships of war were built there in 664 BC, but it had its ups and downs. It was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC because of a rebellion, but Julius Caesar restored Corinth a century later, 46 BC. After its restoration, it grew so rapidly that it soon became again one of the most important centers in Greece, and it was a very important city when Paul visited it on his second missionary journey. Corinth was very important from the standpoint of trade and commerce, but it was literally known throughout the Roman world for the amount of sexual immorality that took place there. The study note from the New Geneva Study Bible on the city of Corinth says, and I'm quoting, Corinth was thoroughly pagan and immoral. The city was filled with pagan temples, and on the south there was a high acropolis with the temple of Aphrodite. From the 5th century B.C., the expression, to Corinthianize, meant to be sexually immoral. And that's why you said sort of. What you meant was Corinth was a great place to found a church because any message delivered there would likely be spread across the entire Roman Mediterranean world. But it would have been a challenging place to have a church, wouldn't it? I mean, there would have been a lot of temptation in a place like Corinth. Exactly. But let's go even a little deeper into what having a temple of Aphrodite actually meant in terms of the daily life there. You know, it was common in ancient cities for a particular city to worship one god or goddess or another. For instance, Diana was the principal deity who was worshipped at Ephesus. Minerva or Athena was worshipped in Athens. Now, Diana was the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of nature and wild things. And Minerva or Athena was the goddess of wisdom, justice, law, and also coincidentally, defensive warfare. So Athens, for instance, was well known for its elevated philosophy. Its goddess was the goddess of wisdom. I see where you're going. Venus was the Roman equivalent of the goddess Aphrodite. Venus was the goddess of love, sex, and fertility in the Roman pantheon. So, the worship of Venus exacerbated the tendencies that were already present in Corinth because of the sea trade and the commercial interests. I guess we could think of Corinth as sort of an ancient version of Las Vegas. Yes. Corinth was dedicated to the goddess of love, or licentious passion if you prefer. The Temple of Venus, or Aphrodite, was erected on the north side of the Acrocorinthus, a mountain that was about a half a mile in height that was on the south side of the city. Now, this mountain was covered with temples and splendid houses, but it was especially devoted to the worship of Venus. There was actually a law in Corinth that said that there were supposed to be a thousand beautiful females who officiated as courtesans or public prostitutes. And those women officiated on the altar of the goddess of love, who was Aphrodite. And some merchants would actually send to foreign countries to get women and to be able to present them to the temple in order for those merchants who, in their minds, were enhancing their chances for business success. So, I think you can get a pretty clear picture of what's going on. Obviously, in a city with a lot of foreign travelers and the temple that's dedicated to the goddess of love or licentious passion, the prostitutes there generated a lot of money for the city. As a matter of fact, travelers would lose their money so quickly there that there was actually a proverb that said, quote, it is not for everyone to go to Corinth. 
So my guess is you're going to tell us that one of the primary reasons Paul wrote 1 Corinthians was to address the problem of sexual immorality, which was rampant in Corinth. And this problem was made all more egregious because in Corinth, not only was sexual immorality not discouraged, it was actively encouraged by the government, the economic forces within the city, and the religious establishment at the temple. Yikes! I'd like to say that is different from today, but I'm not so sure that it is. And you're absolutely right about the point I'm making. The Apostle Paul spent more time talking about sexual immorality and how to overcome it in 1 Corinthians than in any other epistle that he wrote. Paul spent the better part of chapters 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Corinthians discussing sexual immorality in one way or another. And that's close to 20% of the content of that one book, and it is far more than he discussed a single sin issue than in any of his other epistles. 1 Corinthians is 16 chapters, and so is the book of Romans. So when you spend three chapters out of those 16 talking about one single sin, well, that's devoting a fair amount of time to that particular problem. And we talked about the book of Romans in our last two episodes of Anchored by Truth. 1 Corinthians and Romans are all about the same length. In his letter to the Romans, however, Paul devoted less than a half a dozen verses to discussing sexual immorality, as opposed to nearly three chapters in 1 Corinthians. So it's clear to see that sexual immorality was a much bigger problem for the church in Corinth than the church in Rome. And now we know from Corinth's location, history, culture, and economy why that was true. Interesting. Sad, but interesting. So in what other ways did the geography and culture of Corinth influence the problems that Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians? Well, one of the other big issues that Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians, and that he scarcely mentions in any of his other epistles, was the issue of food that had been offered to idols. The issue of whether Christians could eat food that had been offered to idols came up in the early church because of the pervasiveness of pagan temples that were present in most of the cities of the Roman world. It was common in those times for people when they brought food to take it to a temple and ask a pagan priestess or priest to bless it. This was especially common when wealthier people were putting on a large dinner, in essence a feast, for their friends or business associates. And this would have been a common practice for meals or feasts that were being put on for members of a craft or professional guilds, correct? Right. In those days, just as today, it was very common for people who worked at a particular trade or a craft to belong to a guild, a professional organization. In fact, in many places, you couldn't practice your trade or craft unless you belonged to the guild because the guild was the organization that decided who got what work. And just like today, those guilds would put on what we might call business dinners. Well, at these guild dinners, the members would do the same things that they do today. They would socialize. They would talk about business and government problems. Uh, frankly, they would make you know connections and they would gossip. So anyone in the church in Corinth who was part of a trade or practice would have had the practice of attending those professional or business dinners for years or decades. It was a normal part of life for them. But when they became Christians, they had a problem they had never had before. Yes. So let's put ourselves in their shoes, or or sandals if you prefer. Let's put ourselves in the sandals of the guild dinner organizer for just a second. Now, let's say that organizer is not a Christian, so he shares, or at least he practices, the local religious beliefs. 
Well, one purpose of the local god or goddess was to provide the city residents with good fortune and material blessings. So naturally, the dinner's organizer, he wants to make sure that his dinner promotes the success of the guild's members. So that would not only include buying the food, but also getting a blessing on the food before it's served at the banquet. So getting the food, especially the meat blessed, well, that was a common part of banquet preparation. Getting the food blessed meant that that food had been dedicated to the god or the goddess. It had been dedicated to an idol. And the dinner guests would have expected the dinner host to do that, wouldn't they? And if the host or guests weren't Christians, which the vast majority weren't, there was no problem with getting the blessing and eating the food. But Christians are prohibited from worshipping idols, and eating food that had been dedicated to an idol would have been a form of worship. So, the Christian guest has a problem that none of the other guests have. Exactly. And Paul made this problem very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18 through 22. Paul said, quote, Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance, or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of the demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we are stronger than he is? Unquote. That's from the New Living Translation. Yes. So again, we see how Corinth's culture and economy impacted the church in Corinth, and therefore how it impacted the letter that Paul wrote to that church. In this case, we're still talking about 1 Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote where he felt it was necessary to correct some of the church members' behavior, and Paul had either observed those behaviors himself on his visits to Corinth, or he had been told about them. Corinth was a leading commercial center. In Paul's day, the economy in Corinth was vibrant. The crafts and the trades in Corinth, they were prospering. And so lots of people who had been in a craft, a trade, or a business before Paul first preached there on his second missionary journey, well, they were doing just fine. The craftsmen or the tradesmen, the business owners who now encountered Paul and who now encountered this new faith of Christianity, for those people, things started to change. Now, We're being told that there is not a pantheon of gods and goddesses, with a little g. There is one true God, with a big g, who made heaven and earth. And you are learning that the one true God has prescribed certain standards for behavior, and especially for worship. Paul was a Jew, and many of his first audience members were Jews. So they were all familiar with the first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, the one who brought you out of Egypt where you were slaves. Do not worship any god except me. That's from Exodus chapter 20 verses 2 and 3 from the contemporary English version. So now you're being told that if you continue to eat food that has been offered to a pagan god or goddess, you are participating in idolatry. And that is hard on you because times and businesses are good. You don't want that to change. Right. And that helps explain what we heard in our opening scripture. How in the very first part of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, and I'm quoting, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy, when God called you. 
Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise, and He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 in the New Living Translation. Paul was noting right up front when he wrote to the Corinthians that most of the church members were not wealthy or powerful when they became Christians. In other words, not very many of the business owners, the well-established tradesmen, or the upper crust in Corinth wanted to give up their lifestyle to follow Jesus. And we are experiencing that same thing today, aren't we? Yes. You know, we started out this episode of Anchored by Truth noting that in America, and frankly in most of the Western nations today, being a Christian is different than it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. 20, 30 years ago, being a Christian, that was perfectly acceptable, and as a matter of fact, it was outright encouraged. Even people who weren't Christians in those days did not have a problem with their Christian neighbors. And frankly, even people who weren't Christians were glad to do business with the Christians because they knew that Christianity promoted virtuous conduct, including honest conduct in business. But as we've been talking about over the last couple of decades, that common cultural consensus has been eroded. And now we have Christian businesses who are being outright attacked because they have insisted on adhering to their values. And unfortunately, even more people now are displaying an unwillingness to set aside their worldly pleasures to embrace the narrow gate that opens to salvation. So in a very sad and odd way, we are turning the clock back almost 2,000 years. In 1st century AD, Corinth, a business owner, say someone who sold cloth and fabric, might have practiced their business for decades and got along just fine. But once they heard Paul preach and became a Christian, they can't go to the guild dinners anymore, or at least if they go, they have to explain why they're not eating some or all of the food. And they can't go to dinners at the houses of some friends anymore. And now they especially know that they can't go down to the temple of Aphrodite anymore. Well, for what they know will be taking place at the temple. They are declining to do many of the things that their friends are still doing, and their friends cannot figure out why. It's easy to understand how a person like that may have many questions for which they really want answers. Right. Paul had founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Well, by the time he wrote 1 Corinthians, three to five years had passed. And so during that time, problems had arisen within the church. And many of the church members were looking for answers. So, quite naturally, they turned to the person who had founded the church, the great apostle Paul. What could be more natural than going to the person who founded the church to try to get answers for questions that were plaguing the church? So what we see in 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul having to address several issues that were particularly problematic because of Corinth's culture and geography. And we're going to see in our next episode of Anchored by Truth that sexual immorality and idolatry were just two of the issues that Paul had to confront when he was writing to the Corinthians. Sounds like it's a great time to have a prayer. Since we know that Jesus is both the cause, not only of hope, but of our blessed assurance that our future is secure in His hands, let's listen to a prayer for adoration of the Son of God. A prayer of adoration of the Son of God. Blessed and holy God, we glorify Your name, for You are a Father who sees the need before it arises and knows our steps before we take them. Moreover, 
your word has revealed to us that you are not alone in your glory. The great and vast throne room of heaven is ruled by your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who instructs, illuminates, and edifies the people you gave to your Son. In the secret council that is shared by the Holy Godhead alone, you made provision for man's weakness and fall before the first stone was placed in earth's foundation. In acts that we still cannot fully fathom, you sovereignly elected to send your only begotten Son to come and take up human form and flesh. In the fullness of time, your Son descended from the glory that is rightfully His to walk the way of suffering. Your Son fulfilled the original covenant that Adam had broken, and after living a perfectly sinless life, took our place on the cross. In dying for us, He accepted the full measure of wrath due us and made possible our redemption. The grave could not hold Him, for He had done no wrong, and when He arose, it signified that He was victorious, righteous, and fully able to save His people. What a wondrous love is ours from the Father and Son. We kneel in praise, prayer, and gratitude for Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.